Good morning, church. Please join me in reading Romans 1, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called us, called as an, as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. That is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace, faith family. As you know, last week we began this new series on Easter Sunday. And we began to look through, and I mentioned that we often are asked, uh, as believers, as we ought to be, by the way, to provide proof for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and the reason I say we ought to is because uh, resurrection, by definition, is miraculous. And resurrection, by definition, is not something that is normal. And if we're going to make a claim to something that would have been that supernatural, then we ought to have... Uh, proof behind it. And sometimes we come into the Easter season, into this season of, of Easter, and we are asked to provide proof of the resurrection by unbelievers. But the vast majority of us in here, those who I'm speaking with on every Sunday morning, are those who most likely already believe in the resurrection as a factual historical event. And so for me to come and to try to convince you of something you already believe is more of me trying to encourage you in your defense of the gospel out in the world, which we do, and I don't think that's a bad thing, and I've done that before as a pastor and through Easter series. So although I do feel equipping us with proofs of his resurrection is very important, what we wanted to do this Easter is to flip the question on its head. And instead of providing proof of the resurrection, we are going to ask, what does the resurrection prove? Does the resurrection of Jesus actually mean anything? Does it prove anything? And if it does prove anything, then what does it mean for us as believers as we are equipped to go out and to live for the gospel? And last week, and even this week, as you are going to see, we saw that the resurrection of G Jesus proves the Father's faithfulness. It proved the reality that Father, the Father, our, our, our God, the Father, was faithful in the fact that he promised a Messiah that was to come, a Messiah that would die for our sins, raised from the dead, and that he would do the work that he has called the Messiah to do. And the resurrection of Jesus was the authenticating reality of that faithfulness. So what we studied last week is we saw that the resurrection of Jesus proves the Father's faithfulness. And the fact that it is even supported further today that the resurrection of Jesus was the answer to the promises of the Old Testament given by God to his people. And this morning, 
we are going to review, what we're going to review is not only does the resurrection prove the Father is faithful, but it also proves what I consider a, a topic that is as controversial to the world and essential to the Christian faith as the resurrection itself. So what we're going to look at today is an idea or a, uh, a theological reality for the Christian faith that is essential. In other words, you can't, this is not a secondary doctrine. This is essential. If you don't believe in this, you're not orthodox. You're not a Christian. And it is absolutely 100% as controversial as even Jesus being resurrection, resurrected. And it is this, that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Despite what the cults want to tell us, that it is irrelevant that Jesus be God, equal with God the Father, what does it actually prove to us? And when I say cults, that means anything that says they believe in God and doesn't believe in Jesus, his works, and his ways. And I could point to all of them. Jesus wasn't merely a prophet, although he was a prophet. Jesus wasn't merely begotten in the flesh, although he was begotten in the flesh. Jesus wasn't created. He always has been, always was. And Jesus, this is not like the world that Jesus inherited because of his faithfulness in another world or some ridiculous idea that goes with that. So I want you to join me, faith family, as we see this, that the resurrection proves the son's deity. The resurrection proves the son's deity. Now you may be looking at chapters of Romans verses 1 through 6 and asking me, Pastor, why didn't you just start in verse 4? Because I, I know that's where you're going, and yes, that's where I'm going, but I did want to take a brief moment this morning, and this is one of the passages, uh, of course you know there are many passages, and if you just let me preach for 16 hours we would get there, <clears throat> but this is one of the passages that I didn't include last week, but I do want to show you how Paul opens up his book of Romans showing and demonstrating us the faithfulness of the Father through Christ the Son. And he actually says, a bondservant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his promise in the Holy Scriptures. You see, God the Father promised beforehand in the Scriptures according to his prophets concerning who? His Son concerning his son. So we see that this connection to these two sermons are deeply integrated. The father's faithfulness, his promises from the prophets. And now we are going to look at this um, in verses 4 through 6 as the son's deity. We are going to begin to move this now into direction of Jesus himself. And by the way, I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, and if you'd like to listen to that message, you are more than welcome to um, on our app, or you can do it uh, on our website. I would encourage you to do this. So our time this morning is going to focus on verses 4 through 6. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 4 is I want us to see the declaration. I want you to see that the fact that I am making a declaration, the premise, if you will, of all that I have said is clearly defined and declared for us. And the word here, who was declared, and I would say the who, by the way, is pointing to the previous who in verse 3 concerning his son. So we're talking about Jesus. Jesus, who was declared the Son of God. 
So that's what we're doing. We are showing that the resurrection declares Jesus. It is proving something to us. The word here for declare is the word horiz, H-O-R-I-Z. It's where we get our word for what? Horizon. You can hear it. Much like the horizon of the sky provides for us a visual that separates the sky from the earth, it's the idea here of establishing a boundary or it's designating, it's, it's creating a, a separation. It's appointing, if you will, a distinction. Where do I get this idea for appointing? I want you to turn with me very quickly to Acts chapter 17. We will see this word used again. Acts chapter 17 in verse 31. In verse 31, I will start in verse um, 30 <clears throat> so that you don't find me beginning in, the be- uh, beginning in the middle of a verse or a thought or a sentence. But go with me to verse 30, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, and listen to what the word says, and I'll point out the word to you. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, by the way, Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, Jesus as the Messiah, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. There is the word. Same word for declared. Whom he has appointed, having furnished proof, by the way, to all men. How? By raising him from the dead. Ah, so the resurrection proves something, and it proves the appointing. It proves the declaration. He is declaring something. So I think this is beautiful. So the resurrection from the dead, if you will, appoints, or it marks off Jesus. One translation picks up on this idea, and it says this, that, and I like this because it helps bring clarity. It says that Jesus was, quote, patently marked out as the Son of God. I like that. Patently marked out as the Son of God. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus' resurrection, it says, who was declared the Son of God, who was marked out the Son of God with power, we're going to get into that in a second, how? By the resurrection from the dead. So without the resurrection from the dead, without Jesus raising from the dead, there is no declaration that He is actually the Son of God. Are you seeing this? So if you want to come in, and as, as churches are doing today, and what they say is that the resurrection is, a, is an idea, it's a typology, Jesus really didn't raise from the dead because dead people don't raise from the dead, then, then therefore it's a type and it, the resurrection is giving us an idea. Ladies and gentlemen, that is patently false, patently unbiblical, and ridiculous. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, even the idea is stupid. Even the idea is false. And we're going to get into that. And the point I'm trying to contribute to here is this, is that the resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, declared something. What did it declare? It declared Jesus as the Son of God, who was declared the Son of God. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was declared the Son of God through the resurrection because it demonstrated that he had the power, by the way, who was declared the Son of God with power. What's this power? The power that we're going to talk about in a minute to personally defeat death, 
raise again is all is beyond human capacity. It's beyond human ability. The power to personally defeat death and raise themselves again is beyond human ability. No one, save the Spirit of God, as you will see in a few moments, raised Jesus from the dead. His death and his resurrection, which he prophesied to before, was the declaration or the marking out of his deity. Do you want to know, how do you know if Jesus is the Son of God and God of God in the flesh. How do you know that? It's because he rose from the dead. That's how you know. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isaiah prophesied this. He said that a child would be born, but a son would be given. You've got to see what Isaiah says here. This is unbelievably beautiful. Isaiah says that a child would be born. So this this child that Jesus would become, which by the way, he spoke about who was, verse 3, concerning his son who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh. That is God, Jesus' humanity but was raised in power. That is defining and declaring Jesus' divinity. See, he was born a child. He was born a child. The child was born. But ladies and gentlemen, the son was never born. The son was given because the son always existed. He is eternal, equal with God the Father. The resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, is the amen to all the claims that Christ had and that Christ made. In verse 3, Paul is going to elevate or he's going to bring our attention to that humanity. And as I said in verse 4, he brings our attention to his deity. In verse 3, he says he was born of a descendant of David, but he is not born, but he has been brought into being in his deity. He is declared as the Son of God. Because the power, ladies and gentlemen, to conquer death only belonged to who? Who had the power to conquer death? Only God. Only God. I want you to imagine... If at the end of the life of Christ and all that he did that lay before us and all that we had was a cross and a tomb. I want you to think about that. If all that we had was a cross and a tomb. All of his claims of eternal life all of his claims of your resurrection and my resurrection, all of his claims of of kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, all of his claims of a kingdom that would come, all of his claims of a day in which God will rule and reign, all of his claims of him resurrecting, which he claimed, I will raise again on the third day, I will will rise again on the third day, I, I will rise again on the third day, and the Bible says the disciples just didn't get it. All of those claims would have been reduced to mere philosophical or spiritual precepts. But that's not what Jesus did. 
Jesus' raising from the dead is not a philosophical precept. It's a physical, real miracle. He physically rose from the dead. You know what Jesus could have done? He could have laid in that tomb and he could have just rose spiritually and we would have been having a spiritual conversation. And we already know where spiritual conversations go. Oh, I just think this is spiritual and I think, I think this is just, this is what he meant by being spiritual. And all we would have been, we would have been, we would have spent theolo- theology classes talking about the spiritual raising of Jesus from the dead. You know he's in a tomb, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't do that. He didn't leave it up to us. He didn't leave it up to the theologians. He said, nope, it ain't something spiritual, brother. I'm raising physically. And the physical resurrection proves what we teach. And it's the truth that the deity of Jesus was eternal. So that's what is declared. What is declared is that Jesus was the Son of God. How was it declared? It says it was declared with power by the resurrection of the dead. The intrinsic power that resided in him by virtue of his divinity, by virtue of his deity, by the fact that he was divine in very nature. We, we, we're going to do another, ca- uh, another uh, um, uh, 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 scriptures, uh, um, uh, help me. We're not going to do the uh, creed. We're not going to do the Apostles' Creed uh, today. We're going to start a new creed called the Nicene Creed. Why did we move to the Nicene Creed? We moved to this creed because in it we are talking about this very thing. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And it's the very idea that he was God in the flesh. He was divine in his nature. His capacity to raise was that, quote unquote, if, I, if you will let me use this without, without going into some weird sim- sentiment, that his divine energy, as one commentator said, was demonstrated by the resurrection. It was a power that he had that was derived by the authority that he had. Ah, the power was derived by the authority. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'm going to begin in verse 11. And I'm going to read through verse 18. I want you to listen to Jesus. This is his words. He's speaking. Jesus said, and by the way, listen to how this relates to us. Because the resurrection is not, re- is not uh, unrelatable. It actually brings relationship to us in our modern day. Uh, real brief pause. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, how can he consistently be with us? If Jesus is not sitting on the throne, how does he rule? And listen to what he says. Verse 11, chapter 10 of John, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for, his, for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd." For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Here it is, listen. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So now when you go back to Romans, you can see that what Paul is saying here, who was declared the Son of God with power, it was a power that was rooted in the authority, the authority given to him by the Father. Oh, are you hearing me, church? Jesus is declaring himself as the good shepherd. Says that he has the authority to what? To lay down his life and to take it up again. We have spoken on this before about the differentiation and the difference between power and authority. You see, for Jesus, the resurrection in power demonstrates the authentication of his self-proclaimed authority, which, by the way, also validates his glorious proposition that he is the good shepherd of his sheep. Oh my goodness, that just comes home. It just comes home. You're probably looking at me going, that was a weighty statement. Let me read it for you. Jesus, the resurrection in power, demonstrated, declared, showed, the authentication of his self-proclaimed authority. Remember, Jesus said, I have the authority to raise it up again. What did his resurrection show? That not only did he have the authority, but he demonstrated it in power. Which, by the way, for you and me, also comes along and validates that proposition, that beautiful proposition, that beautiful idea that he's also the good shepherd of his sheep, you and I. You see, the resurrection means something. It proves something to us today. Uh, real quickly, I want to I show this because I think it's so important. Because oftentimes what's said is, well, how do you know he meant that? Because uh, I read it. Um, the second thing I know, I know the reason he said that is because of the reaction. I want to read this. You don't have to turn back, but John chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. Listen, listen, listen to the reaction of those who were there. Just in case you think, because this is what I've heard from uh, certain biblical, quote-unquote, they call themselves scholars. They, they read it and they go, that's not what he meant. He's not meaning he's the Son of God. Oh, really? Well, let's see what the people who were present actually thought what he meant. Let's see. Verse 19, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of the demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So how were they responding? They knew that only God had the authority to raise life. And if he wasn't God, but was proclaiming himself to be of the Father, then he must be demonic. It makes sense. If Jesus had the authority to take his life and to restore it, to take off, if you will, the body, and then put it back on, like you do a coat, Jesus had the authority over his physical body that you have the authority over your coat. You have the power over your clothes today. Think about that. He just took the flesh off, and he said, I'm going to just put it back on. Oh. So we see that it was declared, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, and I love this little phrase, little parenthetical phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. 
the Holy Spirit working in Christ, with Christ, by raising Christ from the dead is the very proof of his deity. Every miracle performed by Christ as authenticators of his claim to be the Son of God were through and according to the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and the Father of God working together in Holy Trinity for his divinity. It's unbelievable. But it's very believable. That's why we call it miraculous. I want to pause real quick. Nothing in my notes. I'm just overwhelmed by the Spirit right now speaking to my heart. Guys, do y'all get this? Because I I don't know if you're getting this. I don't know if if you get it. I I mean, I know you get it, but I don't know if you get it. Because if you got it, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Do you get it? I mean, do you get it? What, What fear do you have today that rose Jesus from the dead that you don't have the... You hearing me? Do you get it? The fact that Jesus was the Son of God. God of God. He rose from the dead to prove that he, had to, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. What, what are you going through today that you don't have? Oh, come on now. Come on, yo. I was reading an article this week. It said pastors need to use more, more uh, what, what was the word? Uh, better language is what they were saying, you know. I know yo ain't a good word to use like back in the day. I don't even know if back in the day was a good word to use back in the day. But really, seriously, I'm an uneducated man preaching a very good word, and I just want y'all to know, yo, do you hear me? Do y'all hear me? Risen from the dead, and that spirit lives in you. And you're telling me, you're telling me that you don't have anything to do with him? You don't have time to be in his word? You're fearful of what some, somebody that you don't know thinks or says about you? Come on. Come on. All right, I'm backing off. So that's the declaration. How was it declared? It was declared with power. But I want you to see that this declaration leads to something. It leads to our demonstration. Verses 5 and 6. Read this. Listen. Through whom? I might have got ahead of myself, didn't I? Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Oh, church. It is because he is the Son of God that we those who have been called to belong in him have received grace to bring about the obedience for the sake among the nations. What does that sound like? Because he has the authority that now he is going to, by grace, give us the power to live in obedience according to that authority. When I first read that, it sounded very, very great commissioning. Do you remember the great commission? What did he say right before? He says, go ye therefore and make disciples. All authority has been given unto me, heaven and earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And then what does he give you right after that? For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you you see it? Power and presence in the midst of obedience. 
You want to experience the power of God? Be obedient to God. You want to have the presence of God? Be obedient to God. The power and the presence uh, uh, bookend your obedience. Isn't that good? I know that I'm walking in his authority, and if I'm walking in his authority, I can be obedient to him because I know he's going to be with me in the midst of the walk. What do you want? You want his power and his authority outside of obedience. You want his power and his authority outside of doing what God has called you to do. But that's not the means of grace by which God has given us. He says, you obey me and you will experience my power and my presence. Mm. You almost got me singing. God in his wisdom appoints his son who himself is glorious and excellent to be the one who would redeem those who by grace would come to believe in him. A glory so beautiful that our worship of him is not seen through the eyes of the Father as blasphemous, but beautiful. You need to get my point here. You need to understand that sentence and what I just said. A glory that is so beautiful, and I'm talking about Jesus, that our worship of Jesus is not seen through the eyes of the Father as blasphemy, but beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this to you. If Jesus is anything other than divine and very God of very God, then the worship of Jesus becomes the very means by which we break God's law of having no other gods before him. And if Jesus is not God, stop worshiping him now. It requires Christ to be divine for us to rightfully worship him. In being divine, however, ladies and gentlemen, because Jesus is deity, because he is the Son of God, because he is very God of very God, there is no danger or threat of loving him too much. There is no danger or threat. Oh, I think I love Jesus too much. What? It is because he is the Son of God that you and I may now exalt him and praise him. It is because he is the Son of God in the flesh that we are able to glorify him for his mercy and his love. And without Christ being the Son of God, he, despite all that he did, would be unworthy of our respect. He would be unworthy of our love. He would be totally unworthy of our worship. But because, due to his deity, we therefore are right and good to worship him with all the devotion that we have toward the Father. You have come to this place with a firm understanding of what we are declaring. We are declaring that Christ is the Son of God, incarnated, equal with God in essence. And I am very serious when I say this. This claim is very dangerous because if we are wrong, we are due judgment for idol worship. If Jesus is not God, we are worshiping an idol and we will be cast into hell. This is not a joke. This is not something that I, I preach lightly. The claim is dangerous. Make no mistake. Because I want you to know this. A lot of you are saying, but y'all are sincere people. Y'all seem sincere in what you worship. I need you to understand this because sincerity, ladies and gentlemen, will not outweigh the truth when you stand before God. 
You ever seen this? You know, you see it on our streets all the time in our culture. Well, what about those people who are sincerely doing what they're sincere? Sincerity doesn't make something true or right. I have no doubt that the people on the bottom of Mount Sinai were sincere in the desire to worship a, a, a golden calf. Why do I know they were sincere? Because they sacrificed for it. Did you read it? They were, they were literally willing to give up their gold in order to make this golden calf. Oh, they were sincere. They sacrificed for it. They sacrificed animals for it. They gave their rings and things for its crafting. It's not that they were not sincere enough. It's that they are wrong. This is the reality we are facing. If Christ is not God in the flesh, then we have no business in the worship of Him. Oh, but if He is, and we believe that He is, He is worthy of all our praise. I want to see Jesus lifted high. I wake up to that song every morning. That's, on, that's my alarm clock song. I, 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 I'm in bed. I'm sleeping. Boy, I'm on, I'm on cloud something. And I'm sleeping. I want to see Jesus lifted high. Literally, the words that come out of my mouth. Yes, I do. First words out of my mouth every morning. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. For worthy, as we sing, and as the book of Revelation writes, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's almost like the guy was writing Revelation. He just couldn't come up with enough words, you know. You ever read that and you're just like, okay, we get it. No, no, no. He says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Ready? To receive power mm. and riches mm. and wisdom ah, and might and honor. And he's just going, boy. He's like, I ain't got enough because he is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. He is deity, ladies and gentlemen, necessitates our worship, and his deity is required for the salvation of each of us. How, why do I say that? I'm coming to an end. Why do I say his deity is necessary for the salvation of each of us? Because salvation belongs to the Lord, and if he is not Lord, he can't save us. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Psalm chapter 37, verse 39. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. If he is partial God, he's not God. Salvation is God's prerogative alone. I got to read some of them to you. I know, I know I'm here. But Psalm 68, listen to this. Listen to this, just to show you that, that salvation is God's prerogative. Uh, 68 verse 20, listen to what he writes. God is to us a God of deliverance, and to God the Lord belongs, uh, belong escapes from death. And to, the, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. God to us is a God of deliverances. Jeremiah chapter 17 Jeremiah chapter 17, 
Verse 14. Jeremiah 17, verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Only God can save. Therefore, if if salvation alone is God's alone, belongs to the Lord alone, it is God's prerogative alone, it requires God to save alone. The writer of Hebrews will explain this to us, and you're going, this guy is everywhere. I know, I know, that's what topical preaching will do to you, it'll take you everywhere. Y'all go there with me though. Y'all just enjoy the trip, okay? Sit down, buckle up, let's have some fun. Hebrews chapter 5, listen to what he says, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a, this is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The only way Jesus could be the source of salvation is to be God, of, son of God in the flesh. And this is the testimony of the church since the beginning. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 4? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which has been given among men by which we must be saved. What about Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Which is a quote from Genesis what? 1, 3. Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In our living, this is out, this out, we are utterly hopeless if Jesus is not the Son of God. In living out the great commission that we see in verse 6, we have been called to it. This is the testimony of the New Testament. It is the testimony of the New Testament. The calling of you to salvation and the commandments of God and to the commission of God are attributed to only God. Romans 8.30 states that those whom he predestined, to them he called. Acts chapter 2 verse 39, as many as the Lord our God shall call. 2 Timothy 2.19, according to the, watch this, according to the power of God hmm, sounds familiar right according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purposes and grace then we are told this is it. this is in Jesus as well not only that God has called us but Jesus also calls us Paul writes in Romans 1 6 among whom you are also you also are called of Jesus Christ in John 10 Jesus said I call my sheep by name, and I lead them out. In Ephesians 1, 18, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. All oh, the verses I could tell you, the verses I could read to show you that you are called by God the Father and by Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. All of this we step into and are thereby called to God, by God, to be for God, His disciples. Oh, church. Do you get it? Are you getting it yet? That the Son of God, very God of very God, has called you to be His own? If Jesus is not God, we are doing the work of another. You need to hear that. If Jesus is not God of God, we are doing the work of some other God, some other deity, some other idol. But if he is God, then our work is going to be the extension of his work. 
It's as though he is, it's almost as though he is working out of us what he is working in us. Sound familiar? What he is working for us, what he is working to us. It's as though, ladies and gentlemen, we are to, let me think about this, work out our salvation. For he is at work in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. No wonder when Jesus gave the command, he placed it between those two truths. The truth of his authority and the truth of his presence. I want you to listen to me. What is it that would be required to call these men in the New Testament and you and I here today to faithfully obey this? What is it that would be required for these men that saw Jesus die on the cross? These men that saw Jesus go through what he... What would be required for these men who were huddled up in a room somewhere, fearful of what's going to happen to them? What would it take? Think about it. What would it take? I want you to just imagine... This is an imagination, a terrible one. We knew a friend. His name was Jesus. Hmm. There were 12 of us, men. Men, y'all ready? There are 12 of us. This man proclaimed to be the Son of God, and we believed it. And we saw him beaten, brutally beaten, die on a cross and laid in a tomb. One of our other guys went in there, and we buried him. What are you thinking? It's over. All the hope is done. I made a mistake. What was I thinking? Oh, but I saw him do the miracles. Whatever. What would it take for you to believe that he was now the Son of God? Resurrection. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Because the resurrection proves the deed of Jesus. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. All matters of faith and practice rest on his actual truth, not hypothetical or theoretical precepts. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, then it proves he is the Son of God. You see, the problem, ladies and gentlemen, today is we think our advancement, our technology, our sophistication, our enlightenment, that we got to come into this resurrection and add something. There's a story of a man who once complained that a new religion of his that he considered to be a great improvement upon Christianity because he had develop this new religion and he was going to improve upon Christianity it just failed to catch failed to catch nobody really wanted to follow him so he asked his friend for some suggestions and his friend came to her him and he said sir all you have to do to ensure success for your new religion all you need to do is have yourself crucified and then raised from, from the dead on the third day that's all I find nothing more compelling to the actual proof of Christ's resurrection than the response of the disciples. One author writes this, and I found it quite alarming and just so comforting. He says, There is no more striking contrast than that between the absolute non-receptivity of the disciples in regard to all of Christ's plains teaching about his death and their clear perception after Pentecost of the mighty power that laid in it. The very fact that they continued being disciples at all, and that there continued to be a community that we call the church, 
demands their belief in the resurrection as the only cause that account for it. Because if he did not raise from the dead, and if his followers did not know that he did so by the plainest teachings of common sense, then they would have scattered. They would have borne in isolated hearts the bitter memories of disappointed hopes. Because there he would have laid in a nameless grave, and they were not sure that he was risen. His death would have been a conclusive showing up of the falsity of his claims. In it, there would have been no atoning power, no triumph over sin. If the death of Christ were not followed by his resurrection and ascension, the whole fabric of Christianity falls to pieces. And as the apostle puts it in his greatest chapter on resurrection, this is what he says. If Jesus, you need to listen. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, you and I are still in our sins. The forgiveness the gospel holds forth to men does not not depend on the mercy of God on their mere penance of man, but it depends upon the offering of the one sacrifice for sins in his death, which is justified by his resurrection as being acceptable to God. If we cannot triumphantly proclaim that Christ is risen indeed, then I and you have nothing worth preaching. But if he did, and he did, then we have everything worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the very proven reality for our hopes, yes? Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Do y'all remember the third verse? Who has felt the nail upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our And as one pastor one time put, that's my king. Do you know him? Will you please stand to your feet? I got good news for you, church. For those of us who are in Christ, the truth of the matter is is that now we have been set free because we have the one who has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Do you hear me? And not only does he have keys, He kind of took them from the guy who thought he had it, right? I can't imagine what Saturday looked like in hell. Can you all imagine what Saturday looked like in hell? Jesus died on Friday, placed in the tomb, and then Saturday. I wonder if they were all popping a six-pack, sitting back thinking, look at all I did. We did it. 
Got another one. Woo! We won. Then all of a sudden, all heaven broke loose. Y'all hear me? Heaven, pow, kapow, broke loose. And it was like, I'm here. Uh-uh. Give me those keys. Get out my face. I mean, this kind of stuff, it motivates me. It motivates my Monday. I pray it motivates your Monday. For those of you who are here, apparently I dropped something. For those of you who are here, who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, who have never believed and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I have to tell you. That when the Father calls and the Son calls and the Spirit indwells you, there is nothing like understanding that you have been renewed, you have been regenerated, you have been born again. I call you to faith in Christ by the mercy and grace of God that was procured for us by Jesus and was authenticated by Him raising from the dead. And if you would trust in Him, you would follow through in a believer's baptism. Which means this, that you are going to die to yourself. You're going to call him Lord, King, Savior, Jesus. You're going to call him your Christ, your Messiah. You're going to die to yourself. And you're going to be raised again in the likeness and the newness of Christ. It's the symbolic reality of the faithful promise. It's the fact that you are now going to be dunked beneath the water and be brought back up. That you identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I call you to that. If you're here and you're lost without Christ and God is doing a work in you, maybe over these past seven days, you've been, been away from us for seven days, this is a new Lord's Day, and over these last seven days, you have come to realize that Christ is Lord and King and you want to follow through by authenticating that in baptism, I want you to do that. If you're in here, though, however, and you're an unbeliever, then we're going to ask for this next part for you not to participate in, for this is only for those of us who call Him Lord. And church, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you lived those seven days too, yes? Have you lived every day these past seven days as though Jesus was risen? Think about it. Think back to your week. Did you live every day, every moment in this past seven days as though Jesus was God's Son, risen with power and authority? Have you lived with that kind of, that kind of uh uh, uh, just encouragement and power if not we look at our lives and we look back and we remind ourselves that he died because we are sinners he died because we don't do it right he lived the life that we couldn't live died the death that we deserve to die and he rose again to prove it all in the grand scheme of the amen of the amen of the amen of God so before we come to this table if you're visiting with us we go out we come, we grab the elements, we come back to our seats, and we participate as a family, and I want to encourage you to do that. Again, if you're a non-believer, you're more than welcome to walk up to the table. I'm just going to ask that you not participate in the elements. That's not me pushing you away from the table, by the way. I had a visitor one time tell me that. You're not allowing me to participate. No, 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 that's you pushing away because you don't want to be a believer. If you want to push away, we respect that. So actually, we're respecting you because there is great danger in you participating. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me very carefully. According to the Bible, according to Corinthians, there's great danger in participating in this supper in a way that does not glorify God. And I mean great danger. I do this with all seriousness that we go before our God and King in this moment so that we don't come to this table in an unworthy manner. So church, let us bow our heads before our risen Savior. Amen. And let us pray to him, asking him to forgive us, asking him to prepare our hearts to participate in this time so that he would be glorified in it all. Let us pray.